Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today is going to be a fun day. Uh, we are going to be debating independent journalist Michael Tracy. He is, let's say, not a fan of the Trump indictments. Yep. He's and, always uh, quick with a hot Twitter take. So decided we would have a little conversation with him, a little friendly debate over the merits correct. of those indictments. And as a mega fan of the Trump indictments, I'm very much looking forward to the back and <laughs> it forth. It should be good. Let's just say that. Okay. So anyway, we got a lot of stuff to get to today. Before we do, by the way, we'll do some shameless plugs real quick. Everybody do us a huge favor. Sign up on Substack if you haven't yet. I promise you it'll be worth it. You get all of the interviews and debates that we have and we you get it a day early and everybody else could sign up for free and get the free audio version of the podcast a day later if you sign up on Substack. So definitely uh, check that out if you haven't yet. And much Thank you, by the way, to everybody who's already supporting the show. You guys mean the world to us. And we have never had a conversation with an advertiser or a company or anything. It's all funded through small dollar donations. So we deeply, deeply appreciate you. Okay, so um, here's something that I found rather funny, Crystal. So there was a big article. I forget what outlet it was in. I want to say Huffington Post or maybe it was a different article. But anyway, uh, Wayne Brady came out as pansexual. Okay. Okay. Now, I'm not going to lie. When I first saw the headline and like, you know, the picture of him being all serious with a smug face on, I was like, okay, dude, who cares? Like, we're so past the I'm, I'm coming out thing. It's like, that was so like 2011, you know, <laughs> like in the circles we run in, it's like, okay, you're gay. Whoop-de-doo. Like, who cares? You know what I mean? Yes. But Although then, we should acknowledge that our circles are not representative everywhere in the country and every group. Yeah, but like 70 some odd percent of the country is like, yeah, of course I'm pro-gay marriage. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So now this is a little different because he says pansexual. For people who don't know, pansexual means like I'm attracted to any and all kinds of people. Yep. Right. That's that's the idea. Um, now, so I read through the article, though. I was like, all right, let me just read through and see what this says. And by the end of the article, I was actually like, I feel kind of bad for Wayne Brady. And like because he expresses how he's like never really been comfortable with himself and he's dealt with like uh, mental health issues and when he did finally acknowledge to like his ex-wife and people close to him that he was pansexual, I was like, okay, all right. All right. You know, like, cool. Got you. Like it, it did kind of strike me as like vulnerable of him to admit it, you know? So, um, after I read the article, I had a little bit of a different take than my initial, like, okay, whatever, Wayne, like who cares? Who cares? Right. Right. Um, Go live your life. We don't really care. Well, it appears like, uh, Matt Walsh who spends roughly 85% of his time talking about other people's sexual orientation or, or, uh, gender identity and all stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, it appears like he just saw the headlines, didn't read through the piece or read through the piece and continued to be incredibly callous. And he gave us this incredibly funny reaction. Watch. Pick a side. Okay. Pick a team. Stop being indecisive. That's what that's what uh, that's what pansexual really is. Aside from made up, it is it's a lack of commitment. And, you know, the thing is. Other people. I think. And this will be controversial, but other people have a right to know. Okay, other people have a right to know if they are potential objects of your sexual fantasies. And so that's why it's not fair to walk around and say, I'm attracted to anyone, anyone at all. No one's safe. Now, whenever a group is, if there's like a group of people sitting in a room with Wayne Brady, and so it's a diverse group, and you've got like a overweight 65-year-old man, and then you got a, you know, a young woman and whatever. Everyone's sitting around, and they're all thinking, he could be attracted to any one of us right now. Okay, so first of all, Matt, 
I don't think you need to worry much about anybody being attracted to you. I was going to say, he, he clearly is not used to the idea of people being potentially attracted. <laughs> okay, unless they have like an Al Borland fetish, in which case it's like, okay, I can see you being attracted to this man, right? But in 99% of cases, they're not they're knocking don't, down your don't door. Don't Borland shame people, Kyle. It's not I'm right. Borland shame people? <laughs> Second of all, being pansexual doesn't mean I'm literally attracted to everybody I see. That's right. like back in the day when people when somebody came out as gay and they were like, oh, you must be attracted to me because I'm a man and you're a man, bro. And it's like, no, Todd, you're 312 pounds and you haven't showered in a week. <laughs> They're not attracted to you specifically. They're attracted <laughs> to men, but not all men, right? Like Wayne Brady's attracted to all different kinds of people. And by the way, I should be clear, the difference between this and bisexual is that I believe pansexual also includes like, I'm also attracted to trans men and trans right. women. Gay, right? straight, gender, whatever. Right. So, like, like there it's are, all, it, yes, some it's all a possibility for in me. every category where they would be attracted to. But he seems to misinterpret it as like you just want to have sex with anybody and everybody. Well, there's there's a few things about that that I found was noteworthy. First of all, at the beginning when he's like, pick a team, as if we all just go out and like pick what our sexual orientation and preferences right, are going to yeah. be, mm -hmm. right? Which I always find a little bit of a tell in terms of what is going on in terms of their own brain and inner life, et cetera. I always find it also very revealing. People like him who seem to be just obsessed with these issues. That's, that's number one. Number two, his next point is, I think we have a right to know whether or not we are a possible object of your sexual fantasies. Okay, well, first of all, you don't. Do we all have to, like, go out there with, like, our mm -hmm. sexual preferences published so everybody I'm knows? I'm thinking of like, doggy style with you. Like, what are, right. are you talking about? A ridiculous idea. But furthermore, um, isn't Wayne Brady, like, sort of meeting his criteria here by putting out into the world, like, actually, specifically, I am pansexual. So he is informing you, Matt Walsh, of whether or not you may possibly theoretically be an object of his sexual desires. Although, again, to your point, I don't think he has much to worry about here. Yeah, I mean, I just don't... Why are you so obsessed with other people's sexual orientation and gender identity? And it, this reminds me of back in the day, every time you get a Republican politician or some priest or something who was anti-gay and then caught blowing some dude, they would always say something that indicates, like, well, obviously this is something everybody struggles with. Right. And, like... I, you know, only the moral people can reject their impulses. And it's like, I hate to tell it to you guys, but not everybody struggles with these feelings. Some people are just straight. Some people just have a different sexual orientation or some people just have a different gender identity and they can't get that through their head. So oftentimes the anti-gay people tell on themselves in that they really have, they're really gay. Like they're in the closet, but they have this shame over it. Usually right. they come from a religious household and it's like repressed and like, oh, don't do that. That's naughty. That's bad. And in the case of him, I don't know. With Steven Crowder, I know for sure. <laughs> He's like homeboy dresses up as a woman more than any other supposedly straight cisgender person on the planet. Right. And also he apparently loves to do nut taps 24-7 and right. put his dick so on a, his... As a condition of employment. You have a to condition be comfortable with him yeah. touching your junk. Yeah, and there's all these, you know, this all the countless specific examples of him like, here's my dick! It's like, clearly that guy's struggling with stuff. Him? I don't know, man. I don't know. All I'll say is a little bit overcompensation, dressing like Al Borland and wearing that thick-ass beard and be like, I'm, I'm Mr. Manly Man. Let me go play with my tools. I mean, to me, the, the eyebrow-raising remarks about, like, pick a team... It's like, you're just being indecisive. Pick a team. It's like, that's not, that's not how this works. Right. Like, it's yeah. not like people mm -hmm. are just going out like, here's my menu of options. I'm going to select what thing I'm going to be into. And so that he would frame it and view it that way to me is strange. Weird guy. Yes.
Okay, so uh, I also wanted to share with you, there was this really interesting Fox News debate where Steve Ducey, who every now and then has decided to like buck the orthodoxy and buck the narrative on Fox News. Mm -hmm. He's been one of the more reasonable hosts on Fox News where sometimes he'll be like, eh, I don't know, you guys are going a little too far with this or with this. Him and Brian Kilmeade got into a pretty heated fight over this uh, investigation into Hunter Biden corruption and by extension, potential Joe Biden involvement in said corruption. So let's watch some of that. What role does it play in his policies now? And if nine separate Bidens are benefiting, who have done almost nothing, including his grandchildren, who's to think the president, who averaged $300,000 a year, but lives a luxurious lifestyle, was how not benefiting? How is this not leading right Right. to Joe? And and Brian, you, you brought up a good point. The grandkids got money. Why did they get money? You know, we've heard the numbers, a lot of the numbers in a in a broad way from the Republicans. And and yesterday they they gave us more bank records. But you know what? With all due respect, the Republicans need better investigators because they've got a lot of circumstantial evidence. But they have not shown that Joe Biden profited personally oh, they're doing or great. that he broke any rules. I John vehemently Solomon. disagree. They've it's been all circumstantial. This is okay, un- this is Brian? so. No, no, let me finish. This let is me funnel, finish. But this, is, but this is funneling right to him right. at a rapid pace. They've had they've had this job for about eight months. What was funnel? What's funneling it? Him? Everything is, is, is fun- money funneling it. Is they, Joe involved? Is Joe's pre- is Joe's presence involved in every major business deal that Hunter was involved right. in? As Andy McCarthy said. Joe was the business. He had the access. Right. Hunter didn't. So Hunter Brian, didn't what, have the reputation. It's leading right there. Brian, what laws did Joe Biden break? If the American people knew. Just answer the question. What, would, what law did he break? Number one, the investigation is not done. That's but my right point. Now, the that's impen- that's my he, point, Brian. They need better investigators. So do you, do you not want to hear any reporting oh, no, until no, it's right, done? Right, right, or right, do you so want guys, to see the 19-page memo, the right, Lisa no, Bank no, Records? No, Miranda I, Devine started this. Then John Solomon's been all over this. Uh, Comer, right. the House Republicans have been all over it. They're gathering all, all of the facts. And all the facts are right. pointing to the fact that... Hunter Biden was using his dad's influence to make millions of dollars for the family. They just and then don't have the he smoking gun yet. Oh, this, this, is, this is red. This is, this is a beginning. raging uh, okay, fire. I've got, okay. I've got a solution. Hunter and, does not have a business without his last name and his dad. Right. And his dad was present at all these meetings. What else do you conclude? And to my earlier point, the Republicans just need to present the evidence to the American people and say, look, this they got to say, OK, we can prove 19 pages wasn't did, enough yesterday. Brian, they got to say we can prove Joe Biden broke the law by doing this. They're, the Hunter Biden. Bro- that's that's all I'm saying. So you only want to you only want a concluding sentence. You don't want to see the investigation. I'm watching the inve- this Brian, investigation is the most damning Brian, Brian, leading to you, a culmination I've I ever said. seen. I said it looks terrible. We just need proof so the American public. But you can said say, the, you said the Republicans doing a terrible job. They're doing I said an they need better job. investigators to connect the dots. Well, better investigators. No, you know what? what else we do you disagree need? about this. His just saying. Has doing no incredible job. On a board. Well, that's about as heated as it gets over on Fox. I enjoyed that very much. Can I ask you? Has Ducey always been? Has he been like? Feeling his oats a little bit more for, recently, for, or for the past always two years, for the past two or maybe three years at most. So, I mean, I feel like towards the end of Trump's time in office, he started easing into like, well, that doesn't quite make sense. Mm. Well, that's not exactly right. Well, that's overstated, and so he'll push back when the orthodoxy gets to an extreme. I mean, he's still like, I would say secretly, he's more of like a Mitt Romney kind of Republican. Yeah, so he's he's sort of like repping that like traditional concern. I mean, he may be, even be sort of repping the Rupert Murdoch. 
viewpoint. Yes, that's right. Yeah. He's willing to go along with a certain extent. Like he'll defend Trump from time to time. Mm -hmm. But in like Trump's most egregious things, he's always like, no, I'm not going along with this. And as you can see here, I mean, look, the, the debate insofar as I can tell is like Steve Ducey saying, OK, we're off to a start here. Uh, there's some circumstantial evidence pointing to the fact that, of course, Hunter Biden, we all know he's corrupt, but just how much Joe was involved, that's yet to be proven. And hopefully they can get to the point where they prove that. Right. And Brian Kilmeade is basically like, this thing's already done and over. And if you don't see it, you're blind. Well, and here's the thing. OK, so what has actually come out with regard to Hunter Biden? Like, It's very plain to see he was trading on the Biden name to get his, you know, Burisma gigs and Chinese company gig and Amtrak board seat and all this stuff. Um, the part that just came out is that uh, reportedly, according to one of Hunter's business associates, Hunter would call up dad and put him on speakerphone with these businessmen that he was dealing with as a way of showing like, look, I got daddy on the phone because what they really they didn't want Hunter Biden. They wanted the Biden name. So I think all of that is pretty well established. I think it's also pretty well established that Joe himself at best was very misleading in how he initially characterized these things because he said he never had a conversation with Hunter about business whatsoever. They've now backed off of those comments as it looks like. I mean, it's hard to believe he never, ever had a conversation with his son about any of these things. And if he's on the speakerphone, like, you know, you can draw your own conclusions. The place where they have been way out over their skis that Ducey is pointing to here is they'll make these out, really outlandish claims about the amount of money that Joe himself was receiving and thus far, there's just no evidence of that whatsoever. And so and the part of why they are trying to make it, you know, this very direct like Joe was cashing in on it himself is because, number one, they just want to have as big a scandal as they possibly can. But number two, you know, the elephant in the room they don't address there is like, how much did Trump himself and Jared Kushner and all of those people profit off of the president? I mean, Kushner out there getting billions of dollars. Trump taking money hand over fist. We don't know how much from Saudi Arabia through the Live Golf Tour and all these other things. And so, you know, if you're going to say, OK, well, what Biden, Biden was doing and what Hunter was doing was corrupt, where is any level of concern whatsoever about the absolute grift that was going on in the Trump administration? So here's what I've seen so far. The, the right made a big deal about this whole Devin Archer thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Tucker interviewed him and they tried to make it like it was kind of like a smoking gun. Like, yeah. here's this guy saying he's Hunter Biden's business partner and Joe Biden was involved and all these things. And then when the transcripts were actually released, they were effectively whenever Joe was involved and Hunter was on the phone with him, they were just talking about like fishing and hunting mm -hmm. and all sorts of other stuff. And so it appears like Joe Biden's defense is like, look, my son's an idiot. Yes, he's trying to cash in on our name. He's a drug addict. He's a sex addict. He's a mess. And he tries to, like, drag me into his harebrained schemes. And, you know, at no point have I, like, willingly gone along with this and been like, well, yes, I will do some corruption with you, son, and Devin Archer and whoever else. And so my my breakdown of the situation is very simple. I think that Joe Biden is a king of the standard Washington corruption, mm -hmm. which is par for the course in D.C. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to like taking money from corporations or billionaires or PACs through the official channels that are technically legal and then delivering for them vis-a-vis -vis legislation, he's been done that his entire career. But 
I don't know if Joe is honestly dumb enough to do the kind of Trumpian corruption, which goes above and beyond that, yeah. which might actually, uh, you know, cross legal lines. Right. Like you pointed out, Jared Kushner, $2 billion from Saudi Arabia. Trump is literally making a deal with the government of Oman as he's running for president, right. taking the money from Saudi Arabia, et cetera. Uh, Jared Kushner took uh, hundreds of, I think it was hundreds of millions of dollars, but certainly tens of millions of dollars from uh, Israeli banks when he was, uh, you know, at one of Trump's top advisors. And so... I know the Trump family is willing to skirt these legal lines and be, hey, I have the power now, I do what I want. Mm -hmm. Biden seems to me like he's more of a creature of Washington and he tries to quote unquote color within the lines when it comes to the corruption. So they might be out over their skis in, in over promising and saying like, you know, we're going to really get you a smoking gun on Joe being in the room with Hunter and like, you know, get to the 10% for the big guy stuff that everybody talks about. And mm -hmm. it's like, well, if you guys really had a case on that and you could really prove it, well, show us, show us. And they always come up short with trying to actually prove like, yes, here's the bank transfer to Joe Biden in particular. Right. Also, the other huge part that they're missing is, here's what the what Joe did in return for the people who are paying Hunter, for the to use the Biden name. Yeah, they well, they never would say show that, that part. he, you know, was involved in firing that prosecutor in Ukraine. Like, that's the thing that they like to point to. But your point, and, and which is basically Ducey's point, is the same. It's like, this is... <laughs> unfortunately, and it's grotesque, and it still bears reporting and focus on and like a, a critical lens applied to it. The Biden corruption that we know of thus far is standard issue, unfortunately, legal corruption of the type that happens in Washington, D.C. all the time. And to go back to the Devin Archer, like putting Joe on the speakerphone while Hunter's doing his business meetings or whatever, like, I, I can't believe that Joe is so naive as to not know exactly what his son is doing. And so if he truly never spoke with Hunter about his business dealings, like maybe he should have. If he thought like you're trying to drag me into your crackpot schemes and cash in on my name, stop doing that. He probably should have said that. He should probably say that to the American public. But in terms of a sort of like political impact or public impact, I think the Republicans do themselves no favors when they go way beyond what the evidence says. And when they just, you know, gratuitously want to like you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene showing Hunter's like dick pics and congressional <laughs> hearings or whatever, which have nothing to do with anything, obviously. So I'll throw a curveball at everybody at the end. Ultimately, I think this is a good thing, though, because if you want to open the door to investigate political corruption and legalize bribery, I'm your huckleberry. That's all I've ever wanted is for all these assholes to be held accountable mm -hmm. for the stuff that they do. So whether or not they'll be able to prove something where it rises to the level of impeachment, honestly, I highly, highly doubt it when it comes to Joe Biden. But OK, you guys wanted to investigate the Bidens over their corruption, Biden crime family, et cetera. <laughs> Step aside, son, because now let's look into what went on with the Bushes. Let's look into look into what went on with the Cheneys. Let's look into the Trumps like all day. I'm down to do that all day. And by the way, if you find some incriminating evidence on Joe Biden. Get his ass out of there. You know, yep. who's up next? Who's on deck? Bring him in. Bring him in. Bring him in. Because, I, you know, I have no particular attachment to Joe Biden. I know he's significantly better than Trump, which is worth whatever it's worth. Right. But if you can prove it, prove it. Great. More power to you. But I, I don't think they'll be able to. Number one. Number two, the second order consequence of this I actually like, which is, OK, you open the door to investigate political corruption. Well, let's go all all guns blazing and, and try to clean up our, our politics. Yeah. Set that precedent and let's follow it wherever it leads. Correct. Yeah. Um, so we covered a story on breaking points that I wanted to get your take on as well. A guy named John Russell, who's like a labor lefty, um, lives in West Virginia, actually works at a dive bar and uh, does some good reporting for More Perfect Union and also at his own substack called The Holler. 
He went to a Trump rally in Erie, Pennsylvania. And, you know, normally the approach at these rallies, which is also interesting in and of itself, is to find, like, the person who says the most insane thing you possibly can. Not and, hard. Like, that's the clip that goes viral, Not right? Hard like, you are not person or whatever. So he decided he was going to try to talk to people and see if there was something that maybe they had in common. As I said, he's like a, a, a Bernie kind of a guy. Let's take a listen to how that went. Why Trump instead of Bernie Sanders? What I look at is more progressives like the Bernie Sanders facts and stuff like yeah. that. We actually see a lot of the same problems. I would vote for a Bernie Sanders before I'd vote for like a Ted Cruz or a Marco Rubio. Things are more expensive. I think people are more scared. Our money doesn't have no value. And that's why people, that's why we're having problems. This whole inflation thing. It's been building and building for multi-decades and it's it's getting close now. You work at McDonald's, right? I do. Do you feel like uh, you're getting everything out of work that you're putting into it? I believe I should get paid more. All I am doing is I'm working my ass off to get my money. I'm a hard worker, and I feel like I deserve more. I work down in West Virginia. Yeah. On the rigs for Evil Big Red, Halliburton. Oh, my God. Halliburton, we were two weeks on, one week off, so you never got to go home. We were the lowest paid of all the workers out there. I only made $13.50 when I got hired on. For Halliburton. For Halliburton, yep. Probably wouldn't even have an Iraq war if it wouldn't have been for the Halliburton there's a, and there's a, Cheney and stuff. We were expendable. That's all it yeah. was. Halliburton, Big Red, they called it. You're just part of the machine and the machine can be replaced. Can you really trust a billionaire? Help me understand why that's a thing for you. Yeah, so with billionaires, I would say honestly, no, you can't. Yeah. I'll say with Trump, when he debated Hillary Clinton in 2016, she said all these things about the tax laws, all this. And Trump said, where have you been for 30 years? You know, you haven't done anything about it. And then he said, I know you're not going to do it because all your donors who fund your campaign benefit from the same tax breaks and tax laws I do. Right. So whether it's left or right, these people, they're not really going to change the tax laws from the donors that are funding their campaign. We lost our, we lost our republic decades ago. We're living in an oligarchy. We're living in an oligarchy. All right, what did you think of that, Kyle? Well, let's start with you. What do you think about that? I mean, listen, I think that the uh, portrayal of the American public from the media of, like, we're about to have a civil war, which comes from, you know, MSNBC and Fox News. Like, we live in a conservative area. That is not the reality of the existence that we live in. That part of the country where John Russell is from is part I used to, to live in. And so I personally think there is value to going out and finding some of these viewpoints that align with like a leftist critique of corporate power, et cetera. But what I will say is like, you know, at this point, You've seen, and I asked John about this. I was like, they've seen what Trump actually did when he was in office. No longer a theoretical thing. We had four years of a Trump presidency, and we know what the results were. The biggest priority was a giant tax cut for the rich. So how do you still square that with these views? And I also asked him, it seems like the voting behavior is more about the cultural issues than it is about their purported views on economic issues. So that's kind of my view. Yeah, I mean... My sympathy for this ran out a little while ago. I mean, I've always made the argument that, look, in 2016, I could see it because, yes, you're going to have to overlook a lot of terrible, xenophobic, bigoted stuff, you know, total and complete shutdown of Muslims, uh, the Mexicans, they're sending criminals, they're rapists. I assume some are good people. There was a lot of stuff he said where it's like. If you vote for the dude, you're overlooking a lot of terrible stuff. But he did also say campaigning in 2016, I'm going to keep your jobs here. I'm not going to outsource them. I'm going to protect Social Security. Uh, We should have never done NAFTA. It was the worst trade deal ever. There was some semblance of an argument where it's like, I don't agree with it, but I see it. Mm -hmm. 
when 2020 rolled around, it became like, uh, there's not much of an argument anymore if you want to come from like a populist anti-establishment perspective and back Trump. There's just not much of a factual empirical argument as to why it's okay to support him. Now, approaching 2024, and you're still saying, th like some of the things those people said, oh, you know, oh, us and Bernie supporters, we see a lot of the same problems. Really? Well, what are your solutions? That you seem to differ quite a bit on those, right? If you're still going to a Trump rally in 2024 when he already tried to orchestrate a coup in 2020, and like you said, his biggest legislative victory was a giant tax cut where 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%, which exacerbates the exact thing that you're pretending to virtue signal against right here. So I lost sympathy for this stuff because it's like, wakey, wakey. If you actually believe the things you say, the last person you should be supporting is Donald Trump. You'd have a much better argument being a Joe Biden simp than being a Donald Trump simp if you believe a lot of the stuff that they said in here. Yeah, and so I think for a lot of these people, I know we've talked a lot about how politics like it comes down to vibes. And I think it still comes down to this like, oh, Trump pisses off the people that I hate. And so I like that he, you know, manifestly, and this is part of what John said to us as well. He's like manifestly different than the typical billionaires, not welcome in polite society, et cetera, et cetera. And that's very endearing to them. You know, I do think um, there's a lot of research that shows if you lead with an economic populist message. Now, that doesn't mean that you like throw cultural issues to the side. It doesn't mean you throw black people under the bus. It doesn't mean you don't stand up for civil rights, none of that. But if the, the focus of your initial message is on economic populist issues of the sort that they are articulating that, you know, they would agree with you on there, you will actually improve. The Democratic Party could improve their margins with um, some of the working class voters and not just white working class voters, but also in particular Latino working class voters that they've been bleeding over the course of the Trump years. Do I think that people who are still actively going to a Trump rally in the year 2023 are probably prime, tar prime targets for that type of persuasion? No, probably not. I mean, they're probably pretty rock solid in their views. For whatever reason, they really like Donald Trump. I think it would be pretty difficult to move them off of that at this point. But do I think that we could do, a, that the Democratic Party could do a much better job of trying to reach people? And, you know, if they actually had like some sort of material agenda that they were pushing for the Joe Biden administration and start to make some marginal gains there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a project worth engaging in. But I think we're already seeing that right now. Like, for example, there's been a net increase in 800,000 manufacturing jobs under Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's only two states that have seen a net loss of manufacturing jobs. 48 states have seen a massive increase in manufacturing jobs. Yeah, but you also have levels like measures of financial precarity have increased and increased over the course of the Biden administration. Why? Because at the beginning, he did a lot, right? The initial relief programs really genuinely helped people. Um, they paid down debt. Student loan debt was, um, you know, they, they weren't having to make those payments. There was rent forbearance, all those things. And then over the course of that administration, not only did we have uh, inflation, but we've had each of those programs sort of subsequently rolled back. So the experience that most people are having in the Biden administration is one of seeing their financial position slowly erode and erode and erode. So, yes, I like support that direction, the manufacturing jobs, the push for green energy, so long as those are good jobs and not, you know, what the automakers are doing, trying to make those bad jobs, but anyway, we'll put that aside. But in terms of the majority of people's financial position, like they're not feeling the love from Bidenomics. I understand that, but they're at a Trump rally. And I think you accurately pointed out why are they supporting him at this late date? It's vibes. Mm -hmm. He feels like they feel like, oh, he's not one of them. He's one of us. I got bad news for you. He's one of them. Just because he like talks naughty and is angry and is unhinged doesn't mean he's actually like down with working class people. One person points out there, I'm working my ass off 
to make money, and I feel like I should get more. Yeah, you should. He's not helping you on that front. And despite all my disagreements with the Democrats, like I just said, 800,000 more manufacturing jobs. Biden signed project labor labor agreements to raise wages for 200,000 construction workers. There was just a story the other day in the American Prospect where they did something to do prevailing wage laws now. So they're reversing a neoliberal era rule for low end pay construction workers. So they're going to make more money. I always point out the executive order he signed to raise the minimum wage for federal contractors and and employees to $15 an hour. He didn't get it nationally. But these are all things where it's like, If it was Trump who did these things, these people would all be citing those things as these amazing wins against the deep state. But Biden did these things and now they don't even acknowledge it's happening and they're still at a Trump rally. But I I think probably the reality is for like, you know, that guy who's working at McDonald's, like his life was very difficult working at McDonald's under Trump. And it's still very difficult working at McDonald's under Biden. And he hasn't really seen a benefit in terms of his life um, under a Biden administration. So then from his perspective personal perspective, why not vote for the guy that like pisses people off and makes you feel good? Because he was already there for four years and he didn't help you. Right? Yeah, At but least Biden, Biden is there now say, hey, and he didn't help him either. He's not helping me right now. Tell me, who was it that voted for and against the increase in the minimum wage? Who was it? It was every single Democrat except I think it was seven in the Senate voted against it. Every Republican was against raising the minimum wage. I, and that guy said that was his Lisa, main issue. I, I agree with you. Yeah. But did minimum wage get up to $15? No, it didn't get up to $15 no, an it hour. Didn't. So from his but perspective, like 90% does he, of Democrats does voted he for like it. know the ins and outs of why and who voted for it and whatever? But our job I'm is to teach him to that. I'm just speak from that perspective of where he's coming from. He's like, my life is basically unchanged under both these people. So why not vote for the vibe? But our job is to educate not to justify his incorrect feelings. If 90% of the Democratic Party voted for the minimum wage increase and 0% of the Republican Party voted for it, and he's at a Trump rally, it's our job to go, hey man, like you're missing a couple things sure, here. But isn't I'm not it, judging him, I'm just saying this is the reality. Isn't it also our job to understand why someone may have these beliefs that we consider to be sort of like irrational based on your stated principles and how you're voting? Isn't it also our job to try to understand that so that potentially politicians could do a better job of reaching an individual like this and, you know, making his life better so that he feels he has something at stake and isn't just voting on vibes. I understand him, but I'm also trying to educate him. And that's what I'm trying to do is to not get yeah. him to vote on vibes. I'm trying to like shake him out of his complacency. My tone in 2016 and 2018 even was a lot different when dealing with these people. It was very like, OK, like I'll hold your hand. Let's walk you through this. Here's why Bernie's actually a lot better than Trump. And here's why if you're actually anti-establishment, Bernie's the way. Mm-hmm. At this late date in 2023, obviously my patience has run out. So I'm trying to shake them out of their complacency. Like, here's why you're just wrong if you're supporting Trump. You know, like that, that's my, that's my main takeaway. That's not to say Biden is great, but it is to say he's a hell of a lot better than Trump. And it is to say that this worldview they're espousing, if they're actually genuinely concerned about, oh my God, we need to improve stuff for the work, working class. It's like, you're singing my tune, brother. Now follow along and let's do it. Yeah. But let's not do it in the way that's the most counterproductive of all time, which is putting a fraud back in there. I mean, as I said, do I think that uh, people who are at a Trump rally this cycle are probably prime targets for persuasion? No. Do I think that, um, I mean, but I fundamentally believe in material politics. So I really do think that if you had a Democratic candidate like Marianne Williamson, who actually had a, a agenda that delivered for the American people, that actually people felt tangibly in their lives, where that young man who's working at McDonald's goes from making 10 bucks an hour to making 15 or 17 bucks an hour, would that make a difference in terms of their politics? And yeah, I, I still believe that that is the case. I think effect, I think we're honestly saying the same thing just my point is, while you're still reaching out to them with like sympathy and empathy and, and seeing where they're coming from and the struggle that they're going through, I'm coming at them from now a perspective of like an angry, stern father <laughs> of like, hey, man, like, let's get your shit together now. You know what I mean? You think that's, that's the work? disconnect. 
Um, well, I tried the sympathetic way and that didn't work. Well, I mean, so now I'm trying the other way. Like I said, I don't, I don't know that either is going to work at yeah, this point. But we got to try, I think, right? I think there's so much cynicism, which again, I do understand at this point of like, it doesn't really matter who's in the presidency. I'm getting screwed either way. Yeah, I think I there's so much that cynicism though. that the only thing that's actually going to make a dent in that is to have some real tangible benefits that people actually feel and can see in their lives. And I think that's part of why you did see um, in the industrial Midwest, like that was one of the areas that was the brighter spot for the Correct. Democratic yeah, Party because there point. was yeah. a little bit more yeah. tangible progress there than in some other areas. So to me, the only answer, there, there isn't like really a messaging answer to this at this point, even it's though- It's a substantive material answer. It has I agree to be with you. a substantive material and answer. That last point is also the po point I'm trying to stress, which is like, if you see that, in these places, there was that swing. We just talked about the, the 2023 special elections where Democrats overperformed by 10 points. There's a variety of reasons. There's a plethora of reasons why that happened. But I'm saying, like, let's keep pushing for that better future and not downplay the fact that in some ways we actually have moved in the right direction. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So anyway, there's that. All right, guys. So now let's get into the main event here. Uh, very excited and happy to welcome to the show independent journalist Michael Tracy, where we will be debating the Trump indictments. Welcome to independent journalist Michael Tracy. Michael, thank you so much for joining us, man. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. Our pleasure. Um, so, all right. So uh, we have a disagreement on the Trump indictments, and I'm curious for you to flesh out uh, your views. Obviously, we'll flesh out our views as well. So let's start with this. So here are the indictments, and then tell me why you think they're they're BS. So conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, and conspiracy against rights. So those are the four indictments. What say you? So the, the, those are the charges that are contained in the indictment, just to be technical. It doesn't really Correct. matter. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, so, okay, so first off, I guess I would just stipulate that these should be, the, this indictment should be seen in the context of the broader range of indictment that have been unprecedentedly brought against Trump recently, right? So you had the first indictment in New York State where they somehow concocted a theory that Trump was guilty of defrauding himself, literally. Read that first Alvin Bragg indictment in Manhattan. That's the, that's the claim. Trump defrauded himself by misdescribing the reimbursement for payments to Stormy Daniels in his own corporate ledgers. So, okay, that's number one. Number two, you have the Espionage Act being re resurrected. Remember, the same statute that was used to charge... Julian Assange, Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, Daniel Ellsberg, et cetera, et cetera. That's now being used to go after Trump, the World War I era statute that was used to incredibly overzealously stifle dissent by Woodrow Wilson. Now that that's that's the that's what they're going after Trump with for the classified documents case or the national security documents case. And now here we go with this January 6th case, which is also under the auspices of Jack Smith, who's similarly in charge of the uh, Espionage Act case. And he decided to re resurrect the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1866, which doesn't alone make the bringing of the charges unwarranted. I mean, an old statute can still be a relevant statute. But the mm -hmm. issue here with this particular charge, conspiracy against rights, is that it's a wholly novel application of this statute specifically tailored to criminalize Trump's conduct. So a hallmark of criminal law, or at least the rational 
application of criminal law, you would think, is that a violation of a law is foreseeable to a reasonable person, meaning a reasonable person should be able to know or readily intuit or uh, predict that their conduct would be in violation of the law. Mm-hmm. And that requires that the that a law not be subject to these creative extrapolations to encompass a vast array of conduct that wouldn't have been initially contemplated as criminalizable under the statute. Okay. So I, I, I spoke to a, one of, one of the defense counsels uh, who's representing a co-conspirator mm-hmm. in this indictment, John Eastman, who came up with the cockamamie theory about Pence having the authority to uh, discard electoral votes or count rival slates of electoral votes that have been submitted by Trump electors in the six supposedly contested states. And his view is that at 81 years old, this guy is the founder of FIRE, the Civil Liberties Organization, um, longtime defense attorney who's represented anti-war activists, uh, uh, you know, mi- minority uh, a- activists over the over the years. He views this as one of the most ominous infringements on the First Amendment and you know the Bill of Rights writ large that he's really ever been involved with in his career. Because what are they doing? They're 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 taking what had been previously understood to be political activity and political speech, which you may disagree with, and you may vigorously want to dispute. At the time, I was very much in opposition to a lot of these theories around election fraud that were being propagated by the Trump campaign and right-wing media. And I was you know, furiously debating the with, with, with people who were trying to claim that there was some inherent authority of the vice president to unilaterally exercise his own discretion to decide which electoral count, uh, votes to count. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I was against that theory um, on a political level. But the problem here is now that they've transferred it into the domain of criminal law, which is a fairly stark Rubicon crossing thing to do, because now you're probably going to see this seems to be ushering in or could it have the potential to usher in a new era where rival political factions are now going to be much more incentivized to wield the apparatus of punitive criminal law or punitive criminal state power to basically resolve their political disputes with other factions. Okay. Um, so can I like can I interject here and then yeah, you yeah. can respond? I want to respond to some of your things and then you can respond to what I say. So let's start with the idea, the notion that this is like about free speech. If Donald Trump had just done 25, 50, 100 rallies downplaying the results of the election, saying he won even though he didn't and all that stuff, and he never did the fake electors slates, he never did... Uh, tried to force the DOJ to send uh, letters to the different states demanding that they, uh, you know, don't certify Biden and do the alternate slate of electors. If he never took those other actions, do you think he would have been charged? Impossible to say. All I could do is read what the indictment actually contains as allegations of what constitutes this supposed criminal conspiracy that Trump is guilty of conducting. Yeah, because um, I don't think I don't think there's any way he would have been charged if it was just the rallies and he just did his speech. I think once you got to the fake electors slates, 
that became the real criminal issue. And to respond to some of your other points there, uh, you know, I know you brought up a free speech expert who says he's concerned by this, but there's also like well, free speech expert, experts. a defense counsel, a defense no, counsel that. for one of the alleged co-conspirators. No, I got you. I got you. But I'm saying there's also many free ex- free speech experts who think that Citizens United is about political speech. And I totally disagree with that. I think it's about political corruption. And there's also experts on the other side of this, like Bradley Moss. So it's, it's not particularly persuasive to me. I find that just like an appeal to authority to the idea that this is unprecedented and a novel application. I mean, I would argue almost anything we would do legally vis-a-vis what happened is going to be novel and unprecedented because we've never been here before. And the charge of conspiracy against rights, to me, I look at that and I say the reason why they did that charge is because it was an attempt to disenfranchise millions of voters if their scheme had succeeded. Okay, so I'm not trying to appeal to authority. I'm just giving you an example of another person who's making an argument on sure, the basis of free speech without having be, without being a pro- Trump partisan. I mean, sure. this guy happens and, to not even like Trump. And we know you're not a no, Trump I understand the fan point. as well. I understand We're the just point. There I'm are just saying there's experts on the other side of this On as either well, side of, of this. So there are people with okay. fancy pedigrees that would say all kinds of things. That right. doesn't yeah. necessarily make them correct. No, I'm not saying his pedigree makes him correct. I was just citing another example of someone making a similar case. Um, but so you, you, know, you, you propose a hypothetical of, so it, what if Trump had only done such and such and not this, would charges have been brought? I mean, that's impossible to say, it's a counterfactual. What we can do is look at the actual text of the indictment and what it does is it posits that a litany of Trump's political speech is being characterized as constituent elements of this overarching felonious conspiracy. So there's a reason why they list a whole bunch of Trump's uh, tweets where he's criticizing uh, state legislators Mm -hmm. or he's attacking the Secretary of State of Georgia or he's making all kinds of other, again, I think mostly harebrained comments about the uh, lack of veracity of the election results. There's a reason why all that is cited by Jack Smith in this indictment as a component of the overarching conspiracy, because that's what he's saying is a part of the conspiracy, the speech. Now, is it the only element of of the alleged conspiracy? No, there are other elements that are being posited. But the point is that he had to weave together this vast uh, range of, this vast constellation of political conduct um, and put it under the umbrella of now a, a felony conspiracy. So So there's there's a few things there. I think the fact that you emphasize one component is, you know, itself important because you acknowledge it's not the entirety of the indictment or what he's being uh, charged for. Um, I do think that, you know, a person who allegedly committed crimes talking about those alleged crimes is probably pretty relevant to, you know, a jury in terms of figuring out whether or not they believe Trump is guilty on these. And I would also say so in terms of my view, I think there are three pieces here that make the indictment, you know, pretty solid and make it so that I support it. Because if we were in a situation where Trump had just given rallies and said all kinds of like nonsense, I would not support that indictment against him. I would think that that was a violation of free speech rights. So to me, there are three key components that makes this legitimate. Number one is the fact that there was no significant amount of fraud. Number two is the fact that a reasonable person presented with all of the information that Trump was presented with would understand that there was no real fraud. And number three, that in spite of those things, you still concoct this elaborate multi-state scheme to try to, in effect, steal an election. 
So you said previously, you know, that you didn't think any any reasonable person would really expect that this was criminal behavior. They would think that this was just political behavior or political speech. I just really disagree with that. And in fact, you have people who were cajoled into being fake electors under false pretenses precisely because of the reason that they would understand that there was something wrong with what they were doing if they really understood what was going on. If I was personally you know, concocting this like elaborate multi-state scheme involving some cockamamie legal theory on January 6th to try to steal an election, I would 100% understand that there was potentially something criminal about that. And, you know, people like Bill Barr and others uh, also, you know, viewed it as likely criminal activity. So I just also disagree with the idea that this is totally wild and no one would have seen this as a problem or criminal behavior before. Well, Bill Barr, despite having fallen out with Trump, as you know, still has uh, prefaced his comments on this January 6th indictment by saying that there's a potential danger in criminalizing political activity. But you're right. He nonetheless thinks that the charges could be seen as legitimate. That's legit. So yeah. on, on, the, on, the, on the question of the lack of fraud or a reasonable person not being able to conclude that there was actually significant fraud in the election, mm -hmm. You know, that's a matter of political contestation or had been like you could make an argument that there is no fraud of any significant import. And I would probably make the same argument, but then mm -hmm. somebody else could make a countervailing argument. And then the idea, at least prior to August of 2023, is that that would be resolved in the realm of political disputation rather than by a prosecutor indicting Europe debate opponent so, right, with but, Smith. Uh, but again he's not being indicted because he you know believed lied about the he's fraud or because, because he scheme. believed about him or didn't believe him or whatever he's indicted because there was no real fraud he was presented with all sorts of information to indicate that there was no real fraud he gave some indications privately that he knew some of these claims were quote crazy at least when it came to Sidney Powell and yet one ahead with these fake slates of electors and trying to overturn the results anyway. So it's those three pieces that you need. And if you didn't have one of those pieces, then you're right. It becomes difficult. And listen, they're going to have to, you know, at trial, they're going to have to prove what he heard and what he knew and what he really thought about these claims, et cetera, is going to be a component piece. But without all three of those pieces, then, you know, I think that this would fall apart. But if you don't have those three pieces, like, you know, examples of, oh, resistance, liberal, whoever, saying the Electoral College should do whatever last time around, sure, they, you know, were saying things that were kind of wild, but they didn't create some like fake elector scheme to also back it up with knowledge that what they were saying was completely and, false. And I think Jack Smith well, thinks he can prove that Trump knew he was lying because there's there's some indications of that in the indictment where, you know, like you pointed out, Trump acknowledged to co-conspirator three that the rigged election claims were, quote, crazy. And then, of course, when he tried to get Mike Pence to overturn the results and Pence said no well, repeatedly, Trump said, quote, you're, yeah. he said, quote, you're too honest to Mike Pence, implying he knows that this is like dishonest. He wants him to do something dishonest. And then to your other point, just the idea that, like, how would a reasonable person act in this scenario? Well, he was told by the vice president, senior leaders of the Justice Department, the director of national intelligence, the Department of Homeland Security, cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, CISA, the senior White House attorneys, senior staffers on the defendant's 2024 reelection campaign, state legislators and officials, state and federal courts. You had all these people who were like, this is not true. This is not real. You can't go down this path. And then he did it anyway. I mean, I, honestly, I'm at the point where I don't even think you need to prove that he knew he was lying because a jury might think 
a reasonable person, given this information, wouldn't have gone forward with the fake elector scheme. And that's the crime. And he could just say that, yeah, the officials in various security state agencies that had been at loggerheads with Trump for his entire tenure told him one thing and he disagreed with it. And then. But it wasn't just them. It wasn't just them, else. Other it state legislators told him some, uh, something else. Um, various other consultants that he was you know, interfacing with at the time told him something else. John Eastman, who he was fishing for that answer, or not, is, was actually a professor of constitutional law, but told him something else. He was fishing so for that like answer, Wade, though, right? Who is telling him what now to determine whether he's actually guilty wait, wait, of committing a crime? Wasn't he fishing for that answer? If 90 percent of the people are telling you this is not real and these are accredited, uh, you know, highly respected people. And then 10 percent are saying, oh, yeah, it's real. And by the way, those people like Sidney Powell, who's an absolute psychopath, he's cr clearly fishing for that answer. And he either knows this is bullshit or is willing to disregard the fact that it's likely bullshit to continue forward with the harebrained scheme. But like, I think the main point here is the reason why I don't think this is about political speech is because if he didn't do the fake elector scheme, they wouldn't have a case. But they did the scheme. Okay, well, the, the, the elector scheme is pursuant to a theory that John Eastman in particular had propagated around the supposed primacy of state legislatures in making modifications to election law and designating the electors who are uh, rightly representative of the state's um, election outcome. So when you say that there's no such thing as, you know, there was no significant fraud, okay, but there are multiple components to this theory, which again, I don't agree with on the substance. Sure. But one component of this theory was that the regulatory changes that were made for election administration in the various states, whether it was changing the deadline for when uh, mail-in ballots could be received, or it was uh, you know, modifying signature verification provisions, or various other COVID-related measures that were taken to enhance the ability of people to vote by mail that were done ad hoc at the time, um, but you know could still be seen as defensible or justifiable, given your point of view. That they're saying also is a component of why the veracity of the election results is called into question. Hence, why the president of the Senate, under this theory of the 12th Amendment of the Constitution is endowed with the ability to make a discretionary judgment as to which slate of electors actually constitutes the legitimate uh, electoral votes for a given state. Um, so I'm not willing necessarily to, you know, out of hand, accept that that theory that I reject is therefore criminal. Um, and when you, And I also do think that there's a legitimate argument that the submission of these electors is a component of speech. Um, because if, if you submit what you believe to be a legitimate slate of electors uh, for your state's vote based on your legitimate theory that because of the COVID regulations or because of what you see as election fraud being so prevalent or for whatever of the reason, really, mm -hmm. um, your political values dictate to you that the submission of this slate of elector electors is uh, valid. And there's a constitutional theory which enables you to submit these electors. Um, yeah. And nothing like this had ever been criminalized before or even really but, been but entertained as criminalizable. Okay. Then Michael, I think you are having your political here, activity um, in, infringed upon by the state. Here's why I disagree with that. And Chris, I want you to jump in. Um, so the secretaries and states, the secretaries of states and governors of these seven states where they did the fake elector slates, they had already certified that Joe Biden won. So everything you're saying is certainly debatable prior to that occurring. But they had already done that. And by the way, there's a tremendous amount of evidence that 
they knew as they were going through this theory that it was not only wrong, but illegal. So in the indictment on December 13th, co-conspirator one and five had a conversation where they decided the plan is no longer to do fake electors in case Trump wins, but to do the fake electors no matter what. And by the way, they use the term fake electors. And there's even another portion in the indictment where they refer to this their scheme as, use, as using fraudulent electors. They use the word fraudulent. And also the same day, a senior White House advisor in a meeting with Trump and uh, co-conspirator and two other co-conspirators conspirator, said, I don't know who wants to put their name on this thing because it's, quote, certifying illegal votes. So this was their own view of what they were doing. We're certifying illegal votes. Okay, we know I mean, that the that's Secretary all for an indictment that hasn't been cross-examined or, or adversarially scrutinized. So just you have to take that, and you can't really take that at face value, this narrative that Jack Smith is weaving. I mean, Jack Smith but is But wouldn't a you say there's a distinction there, though? Isn't there a distinction? Isn't there a difference between doing everything you said, but doing it before the secretaries of states and the governor certify it and doing it after? Aren't they very different? And isn't one of those things potentially criminal? Well, no, because the theory here is, is that on January 6th is when the ultimate certification takes place, meaning that if a certain faction within a state contests that the governor or the secretary of state had legitimately issued their certification of a certain slate of electors, then they're still entitled up until January 6th to orchestrate their own submission of electors and then leave it to the judgment of the president of the Senate or the vice president, Mike Pence, to de decide which slate of electors is um, valid. You know, I, actually, in one of the memos that was just got leaked to the New York Times by this guy, Cheeseboro, who is also one of the co-conspirators, uh, co mm -hmm. cited in the indictment. He who has a um, hilarious last name. Yeah, he quotes, <laughs> he's a lawyer, he, he quotes a CNN.com op-ed piece by uh, Van Jones and, oh God, who was the co-writer? It was... Uh, uh, it's escaping my mind now. It's a very well-known Democratic uh, a lawyer. Oh, um, well, well but, if Van Jones said it, it must have been well, fine. No, but, no but, they, but, <laughs> but, they're, but they're saying that, look, but, in, in mean, the event that like, there's any dispute about Pennsylvania's electoral votes, yeah. then Democrats should convene and submit right. their own rival slate of elections on January but 6th. You, now, but you, said something, you said something key there, though. In the event that there is a dispute, a legitimate right. dispute, Right. Of which well, there was none, the there was none here. That there's some there there, that there are some actual votes that were, you know, a problem that were potentially significant. I mean, a lot of this had been litigated in the courts. Agar and I also, you know, spent a lot of time during that time period going through all the court filings to try to go piece by piece, take the claim seriously and see what it all amounted to. And as you know, it all amounted to a whole lot of nothing. And if we're able to figure that out, the freaking president of the United States was certainly able to figure that out. But I do think, you know, to, to give some credence to your point, I asked an expert on these things who does support these indictments, what Trump's best defense is here. And he pointed to what you're saying, basically like throw John Eastman under the bus, say this was the advice of counsel and try to pin the blame on on them. But the fact that you can find a lawyer to endorse your criminal scheme isn't some side, kind of like get out of jail free card. He clearly was shopping around for the answer that he wanted to get. And so the fact that you can find someone who, you know, supports what's effectively criminal behavior doesn't mean that it wasn't in the end criminal behavior. But again, when you say that there has to be some legitimacy to the dispute for it mm -hmm. to be a non-criminal dispute, the notion of legitimacy or what constitutes legitimacy, that's a matter of political 
contestation. But they called right? it illegal. Your notion of what constitutes so legitimacy like is clearly they, different they, from what a whole lot of Republican state legislators thought constituted legitimacy. But Michael, in their own correspondence, they called it illegal. Trump's counsel said in a meeting with Trump and two other co-conspirators that this would be, quote, certifying illegal votes. They called them fake electors. They didn't use the term alternative. They said fake electors. And then somebody came in after the fact and was like, hey, to cover our asses, we might want to use the word alternative instead of fake. Is, doesn't that okay. show well, I mean, you what John they're Eastman thinking? never used that terminology. John Eastman, to this day, argues that his theory is completely valid under the 12th Amendment. I actually just posted a law review article by two Boston University law professors that was published in 2022, which, while not entirely endorsing the Eastman Trump theory, does posit that the vice president or the president of the Senate, who's ever presiding over this ceremonial legislative hearing, does... Uh, possess the only constitutionally afforded ability to make a discretionary judgment as to what slate of electors is valid and ought to be counted. Now, yeah. that doesn't seem necessarily correct to me, but right. I mean, you can't criminalize that, or at least it well, wouldn't have been cognizable for that to be criminalized. You're using, before. look, this is part of the indictment too. You're using fraudulent evidence, fraudulent documents of fake electors to then give it to Mike Pence. So they literally created a paper trail of their crimes. I'm with you, Michael. I, if it was just speech, I'd be on your side. I argued against Russiagate right next to you in the trenches because I thought it was totally bogus. I thought it was BS. But in this instance, he didn't just give speeches. They did the fake elector slates. They knew it was illegal. They knew it was wrong. They created a paper trail and they tried to force Mike Pence. And by the way, when I read through the whole, uh, the whole indictment, I was amazed. Some of this stuff I didn't know. I was amazed at. So Trump repeatedly tried to. It wasn't just pressure Pence. It was like coerce Pence into doing this to the point where he came out on January 5th and said the VP and I and I are in total agreement that the VP has the power to act. It was like his last ditch effort to like try to force him into doing it. Like, mm -hmm. Mike, I already said that you're going to do it. So are you going to do it? I mean, this stuff is astonishing. Yeah, is he, tweeted out a, he tweeted out an attempt to pressure Mike Pence. Like when did attempting to pressure the vice president become a felony? And also on, the, on the issue of the, electors, the, uh, on the, issue of the electors being fraudulent, so you're telling me that all these Republican electors in the six or even seven states, because they've thrown seven, in New Mexico yeah. for some reason, correct? Yeah, um, they were cognizant at the time. No, no, when they, they signed their names to these pieces of paper that they were committing felonies. No, no, they were duped, so they, and so, that's actually so they, in the they indictment. They submitted too. evidence of their felonious conduct to the National Archives. To the no, president no, no. of the Senate, Michael, to their own state secretary of state, and to the governor. So this is like, part that, of the crime. They were defrauded. Do when they, then they're, Michael, when they're those committing people a were defrauded. Those people were told we're only going to use this in the case Trump actually wins the election. But then they had the conversation behind the scenes. No, we're going to use this no matter what. So they defrauded those poor people. They didn't know how this was going to be used. Part part of the allegations in the indictment. Well, the electors is, in Michigan oh, have been charged with felonies by the Democratic state uh, uh, attorney general. Which well, I guess we're not of, supposed to care about either. But part of part of the allegations in the indictment are that many of the electors, perhaps not all, but some of the electors were told effectively, like, we're only going to use this if we find enough fraud and it's, you know, litigated in court that we need these alternate slates. So in the event of like legitimate, actual, provable fraud that changed the results of the election, then your name is going to be used. So they had to be tricked, in effect, into signing their names to this because of the worry that they were, you know, really doing something wrong. But I want to I want to ask you a question because I want to understand a little bit more your position. So how far like what is conduct that Trump could have committed that you would look at and say, like, OK, yes. He deserves to be indicted. He deserves to be charged. This is criminal behavior. Like if you had, for example, 
you know, an audio tape where he's acknowledging he knows all of this is bullshit and like it's clear to him and he's going forward with the scheme anyway, would that be sufficient? Would it be sufficient if his scheme actually succeeded and he successfully pressured Mike Pence into doing this and like threw the whole election outcome into doubt and was like more successful with his scheme? Would that be far enough? Like, I'm just trying to get a sense of where are your lines that you don't think he crossed that would have led you to say like, okay, I, I accept that this is criminal behavior. Well, I mean, the question of what would have constituted criminal behavior on Trump's part is almost a broader mm -hmm. philosophical question because I guess one of my more theoretical objections to this whole, I would say, you know, farce is that we're at the point now where there's this perverse you know, glaring irony that the only presidential conduct ever to have been criminalized in the entire history of the United States since 1789 is number one, covering up a payment to Stormy Daniels, number two, waving around a document that contains some kind of chairman of the Joint Chiefs plan to attack Iran, and number three, um, you know, hectoring Mike Pence or criticizing the Secretary of State of Georgia. I mean, I mean that's so, kind of again, underselling what's in the It's yeah, frivolous in the grand scheme of presidential conduct that could be criminalized. So, but, but let me, but, let me um, ask well, you. Hold on, I have another answer. Yeah. I have another answer. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. So, what they've been charging the January 6th rioters with, mm -hmm. oftentimes, is obstruction of a official proceeding, which they've right. also charged Trump with. Now, I think a lot of the efforts to go after the January 6th uh, rioters has been overzealous as well. But you can't deny, I wouldn't deny that there's a technical violation of a statute there in that they entered into this restricted area and they did likely uh, interrupt a congressional proceeding. So that's much more tenable as a, as a charge because they physically did something that caused the obstruction or the interruption of the official proceeding, whereas because Trump didn't physically do anything to interrupt the proceeding, they have to weave together this convoluted criminal, you know, novel criminal theory to prosecute him for under the same statute that they're using to prosecute people who actually did a physical thing to bring about yeah. the obstruction. See, I, so if, I, I Trump, if, Trump, if Trump joined the rioters and barged into the Senate and, you know, pranced around with the QAnon shaman yodeling shirtless to try uh -huh. to levitate the Pentagon or something and quote unquote overthrow the government, mm -hmm. then that probably would have constituted a technical violation of the same statutes that the you know the goofball rioters gotcha. were charged. So in other words, if Trump stormed the Capitol, he said, then he would say he committed a crime. Go yeah, ahead, and see, it's funny because I look at that in the exact opposite way. I see all these people who like you know did whatever they did on January sixth, getting charged and you know facing prison time and all of these things, and I would find it an outrageous injustice if the person who really orchestrated that whole situation with knowledge that, you know, everything he was saying was basically bullshit. If he got off scot-free, I mean, that's what I would find to be a real two-tier system of justice because I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the January 6th rioters, but I think many of them genuinely believed the claims, actually thought they were some sort of like revolutionary patriots doing the right thing. Whereas with Trump, there's a good bit of evidence that, you know, if he didn't believe that what he was saying was bullshit. He had every reason to believe and to understand. He had complete information. We and gotta be strong, take the he, country back with strength. Yeah, so to me, I, I see it totally differently. If all of these low level people who were lied to um, and persuaded to you know do what they did on January 6th are facing these tough criminal penalties, I would find it disgusting if the ringleader uh, faced no accountability.
Well, I mean, on, on, in theory, I don't even necessarily disagree with that. But we're talking yeah. about what would constitute a technical violation of a criminal statute, right? So it's not about a broader principle at stake necessarily, at least in terms of how you seem to phrase the initial question to me. But I mean, I agree in that there's, I mean, it's, it's actually been underreported how viciously overzealous so much of these prosecutions have been about the kind of just uh, of the these ordinary January 6th rioters. The government has taken as adopted this habit of once they coerce a guilty plea or once they obtain a conviction of one of these people who really oftentimes really did not much more than trespass. There are occasions where like they get into a little scuffle with police or they maybe uh, defile some kind of uh, property within the Capitol, you know. Yes. Was it a technical crime? Uh, sure, probably, but not like the this apocalyptic end of the world type crime necessarily. I mean, um, there, but, listen, but what the government a, has done, but what the government has done in the yeah. sentencing phase of a lot of these prosecutions is do this end run where they try to upgrade or enhance the sentence of the convicted person to get them in prison for longer by asserting that they were participants in an act of terrorism. Right. So they're resurrecting and then all these war on terror era statutes and uh, penalties. This this sentencing enhancement actually has its origins in the uh, Patriot Act, believe it or not. And then dumping that on these guys to 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 put them behind bars for an even longer period of time. And this is just one example of the incredibly punitive tactics that they've employed. So, I mean, I agree with that in principle. And that informs my reticence to endorse this indictment overall. I mean, here's an interesting thing. I'm curious what you guys think about this, okay? So for two and a half years, we've been barraged with this notion that January 6th was an insurrection, right? Every Mm -hmm. single time the media refers to this event, they call it unambiguously an insurrection, like that's just established fact or the word of God. Meanwhile, Jack Smith, for the first time, has an opportunity to actually invoke the statute in the U.S. criminal code that prohibits citizens from engaging in armed insurrection or even inciting an insurrection Mm -hmm. and chooses to punt on that crime and doesn't charge Trump with it. Michael, but that that literally makes my case, because one of the reasons why I thought you might be sympathetic to these charges is because... He didn't get out over his skis. He didn't try to charge Trump with sedition or treason or insurrection, which would have been an incredibly difficult thing to do legally. But it looks like the way he did this was very nuanced, very intelligent, and he got him on things that might be actual crimes. Well, no, I, I don't agree that he's very nuanced I know and you intelligent. Don't, I mean, you he might be savvy enough where he's able to obtain a conviction in Washington, D.C. I don't know how much savviness that requires. Um, using but lots of publicly available information, but he the point overreach. is, I mean, doesn't but doesn't 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 his declining to use that statute, which was first remember uh, recommended by the House January Sixth Committee, they get issued a, a you want to say fake? There's no such thing as a, the House Committee issuing a criminal referral to the Department of Justice. They claim to do that um, despite having no power to do so. And one of the charges that they recommended that the DOJ bring against Trump was incitement of insurrection. That's what this. That's what the House impeachment article accused mm-hmm. Trump of committing incitement of insurrection. It. So I mean, what does it tell you? I mean, leave the, in, the indictment aside for a second. What does it tell you about how, like, about the over, pol- overall political salience or the political uh, significance of January 6th that the term that's been used over and over again to describe this event could not even be endorsed by the prosecutor I mean, who has again, the, whole, the, the ability to charge you're it. Ma- you're making my point for me, though, man, because, again, I feel like he didn't do that because he's smart and he realized there's not enough evidence for me to get him on that. But there is enough evidence for me to get him on conspiracy to defraud the U.S., conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding. And 
I think this one is rock solid, even though I know you have issues with it. Conspiracy against rights. The whole idea is if your fake elector scheme worked, well, then you would have disenfranchised millions of voters and effectively stolen an election. This is this seems to be on rock solid ground to me. Well, I mean, what seems to me the more plausible explanation for why he uh, punted on the insurrection charge is because it would have been a much more flagrant and overt abridgment of the First Amendment. So we had to kind of be more crafty and do a slightly more subtle infringement of the First Amendment that wouldn't just jump out to people as this obvious violation. But, see, um, but, but in terms of disenfranchisement, again, this is, this is another reason why this guy, Jack Smith, of course, who's this heroic, you know, saint, uh, sainted figure now in the liberal intelligentsia, just like Mueller was, um, and, you know, who they poached from the International Criminal, criminal Court where he was running the Kosovo Tribunal and therefore had to abide by no precedent whatsoever um, while he was on loan to The Hague for four years. So curious why Merrick Garland chose him, of all people, but setting that aside, um, this idea that it was disenfranchisement is a political uh, a political deceit or it's political skullduggery to characterize the charges as such. That's not what he's even been charged with. That's not what the indictment charges Trump with. But what did Jack Smith do when he got before the TV cameras the day that the indictment was issued? He did what you did there, which is he, he said this indictment has been brought against Donald Trump for disenfranchising millions of voters. Why didn't you charge that in the statute? Or why wasn't that made explicit in the statute? He just extemporaneously claimed that that was what Trump was being charged with because Trump didn't disenfranchise any voters. What is disenfranchisement? That, that is in the indictment. I don't know what you're the about. ordinary citizen conceives of that in a concept. It's that when is, he deprives the, the citizen of the ability to vote. Nobody was deprived of the ability to vote. Everybody voted but in 2020. It was actually the highest turnout work. election because since it didn't work, Michael. Was, because it didn't work because of Mike Pence. He was trying, he was attempting to deny people their rightful voice in the electoral process. I mean, that's the rights violation. And in terms of, you know, you've repeated this this idea, which I think, you know, is uh, bears digging into that these are like novel applications of these laws and this is really unprecedented and what he's doing, et cetera, et cetera. But we've also never faced this particular set of facts in American history. So definitionally, anything that you did with regards to this was going to be unprecedented. You know, on the um, uh, sure. charge of being uh, corruptly obstructing influence or impeding an official proceeding or attempting to do so, you now do have, as you pointed out, a lot of the January 6th rioters, more than 310 defendants have been charged with that for their role in, you know, whatever they were doing in January 6th. And you've had 15 different judges who have adjudicated these cases, 14 of them, of the 15 have backed the government's interpretation. It actually went up to a federal appeals court, um, which also backed the federal government's interpretation of this statute, this statute, and is the way that Jack Smith uses it in this indictment. So, you know, this could go up to the Supreme Court. They haven't exhausted their avenues of appeal. But thus far, this is no longer a novel theory. It actually has been tested and adjudicated in the courts with regard to January 6th defendants and with regard to just the overall government interpretation of the statute. But, but the conspiracy against rights charge hasn't been adjudicated, and that's the overarching charge. I mean, that's basic. That's like but the foundational take, charge sure, of the indictment. That one, I agree with you, is the most novel application. I happen to also think that it makes sense. But you disagree with all of the charges, not just that well, one. Well, well, because, I mean, because the conspiracy against rights is the undergirding charge. Like, that's the charge on which the other charges are I don't know what topped, that means. <laughs> but, but hold on, Crystal, let me ask you this. Yeah. Let me ask you this. If you grant that there's the, the novel application of the uh -huh. statute, 
then how could you invoke the analogy of, oh, this is not the criminalization of speech, just like it's not a violation of the First Amendment to charge someone criminally if they vocalize their intent to commit murder. Like saying that you want to murder someone is not protected by the First Amendment. I agree. But then but that's not an apt precedent because obviously committing a murder is a much more well-established crime sure. than whatever the ultimate crime is here that they're claiming that Trump was conducting the conspiracy pursuant well, to. Yeah, but it's saying it's like saying because we've never been here before, therefore we can't do anything about it. And I just don't agree with that. I just, you know, I think that the things are uh, effectively crimes. And to back up your point, on January 6th, and this is from well, there's the stuff you can do about it. You Hold can on. not vote for Trump. You can Hold criticize on. Trump. I just want to back up uh, what Crystal's point was there for a second. On January, this is from the indictment. On January 6th, as violence ensued, the defendant and co-conspirators exploited the disruption by redoubling efforts and trying to convince members of Congress to further delay certification based on false claims. So after all the violence, after Trump, you know, initially egged people on and then came out and spoke out of both sides of his mouth and said, actually, go home, you know, be peaceful or whatever. Later in the day, he was still calling Congress people, still calling senators, and a lot of his co-conspirators were as well, to try to tell them, you have to keep postponing this. Don't do the certification. So how is that not like almost black and white example of obstructing an official proceeding? But that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about as far as political activity now being criminalized. What, what did you just give an example of Trump doing there? Obstructing an official proceeding. Lobby, no, you <laughs> you gave an example of him calling senators and lobbying them to take political action. Or to obstruct action. an official proceeding, which was already, no, we you, already exhausted he, all the legal avenues. They had the 64 cases. But, the no, secretaries but, of state but, and the governors already, already verified everything. Even Mike Pence was like, I'm going to verify this thing. It was already, it was done. It was over. There was no, there was no more legal avenue. And they knew that what they were doing was illegal because they called it illegal and they called them fake electors. That's the point. No, they knew no, it no, was no. wrong. Trump was Trump was calling up senators and telling them that what they should do is in the midst of this January 6th congressional proceeding, which had previously been largely ceremonial, although Democrats did contest the certification of electoral votes in 2016. But we'll leave that aside. Um, he was saying that they should invoke their statutory authority under the Electoral Count Act to register their uh rejection of certain states' electoral votes, and then delay the proceedings so that there could be some action taken that could eventually maybe get Trump in power. But what, he was lobbying senators that to take legislative ask. action. Now, I don't that agree with listen, that, that. That legislative wasn't even action ask. was well-founded, but the it was original lobbying was senators. Keep it was Trump within the confines of the Hold constitutional on. and legal system that he was doing this. Their original ask, and this is in the indictment, was keep Trump in office. If they did that, would you have said, well, that's not illegal either? I'm just curious. Um, I mean, if, if Trump had called up the senators and say, hey, guys, here's what you should do. Rally the rioters and bring them into the congressional into the, the the Senate chamber and get them to physically obstruct the proceedings and, uh, you know, take physical action to impede the certification of votes, then that would have been uh, an obvious deviation from what kind of conduct would be cognizable as legitimate legislative or uh, political activity. But as it stands, what Trump did did was get on the phone and tell senators to exercise their powers under the Electoral Count Act and, and take legislative action. So I, again, me, I just don't understand I, this, this, this because, desperate because desire to not all of a sudden criminalize political conduct that we, we would have it's, in the past just rejected on political grounds. What you're not understanding is it's not political it's not political after you already had the secretaries of states, after you already had the governors say 
this is over. This is a settled issue. They already verified it for Biden because Biden had the most votes. After that, they even refer to it as illegal, what they're doing as illegal vote counting scheme. So anyway, go ahead, Chris. I know you want to jump in. I'm, I wanted to, to press a little bit more on uh, something you've alluded to a couple times, which is the fact that, you know, this is unprecedented, certainly in terms of a uh, former president and at the time a current president's conduct being criminalized. Um, do you think that there is any situation in which former presidents should be indicted on any charges? Or are you of the view that the only mechanism to handle this is through the political process and we just shouldn't go down this avenue whatsoever? Um, I don't know that I had a firm view on that because mm -hmm. what up until 2023, there had been a president that you know, whether we like it or not, the president's conduct while in office is essentially immunized from criminal sanction. Now, whether that's a good sanction or not, you know, is probably up for debate. I would probably err against it um, under mo a lot of circumstances. But you know, yeah. it, it would seem to me that you know, for example, launching the Iraq War on false pretenses or um, uh, doing foreign yeah. assassins, like like how like you, you notice that there's never been even the faintest hint that Trump would be prosecuted for. Assassinating the top general of Iran, killing Soleimani. Yeah, yeah. I right. think he should have been right. I agree right. with you. I mean, we agree but, on this one. Yes. yes. And so I, what does that say about the? What does that say about when acts suddenly become criminalizable? I mean, doesn't what, that show? Doesn't that suggest a distortion or a warping of the political priorities that are at play here? But, Wait, the on. warping is that we didn't charge the other people like George W. Bush right. and Dick Cheney and that we didn't charge Trump for the assassination of Soleimani. It doesn't tell me that we shouldn't do this charge because I think this was criminal as well. Go ahead. You want to respond to that, Michael? Well, I mean, sure, but then you could also <laughs> charge Obama for assassinating uh, the son of uh, Anwar al awlaki You could have charged okay. Bill from Clinton your lips for to God's ears, bombing the, uh, yep. the the pharmaceutical factory in Sudan. Amen. I Amen. Mean, yeah, we'll stop I, them so from I, I, If we did that, point, we'd stop them. Which, which I don't necessarily object to on, on, on principle, but at the same Good. time, you got to be a slightly wary that this could just devolve into never-ending rival criminal prosecutions of every single or, president. Or they stop killing people overseas willy-nilly. That could Maybe be the other so. thing that again, happens. That's, I'm willing to entertain that theory. Yeah, but, but, yeah. But, but, but the facts that the facts as they stand before us now is that Trump is the first is now the first president since 1789 to be charged with this particular conduct, and yeah. I, I'm just not going to endorse that as a necessarily a defensible uh, precedent-breaking exertion of the criminal law because the it shows is a bad. skewed I want to break that priority. Precedent. I mean, I, I don't think the fact that we didn't prosecute people who should have been prosecuted uh, is, you know, is a good argument for then giving Trump a free pass. Now, I do think that no, the reason yet. but I, I do think the reason why, you know, the war crimes that like all American presidents commit, why that isn't the thing that they charge is precisely because they want to get Trump on the things that are novel that no one else has done before. And so this right, is the yeah. thing that is carve it out. Yeah, yeah that is mm -hmm. quite overt. That no one else, I mean, you could argue Bush, but we'll get, we'll put 2000 aside. Um, but no other president has done quite this thing. And, you know, I know there's a lot of like, frankly, very disingenuous talk about like our democracy and pearl clutching over that. But this genuinely was an assault on our democracy. I don't think that the winner of an election is like a state of mind that's up for debate. There's votes. They, we agree ahead of time on the rules by which those votes are cast and how they're counted, and then we count them up, and the math is what it is. The fact that you can find some crackpot lawyer or another to endorse like a wild legal theory that basically backs up your attempted Keystone Cops coup, 
doesn't let you off the hook for, you know, what was really a pretty serious thing that he was up to there. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, the fact that something is precedent breaking doesn't mean it's inherently wrong or inherently unjustified, right? Sure. To take precedent breaking action could be warranted. But in the domain of criminal law, that has a different meaning or a different resonance. Because again, a fundamental tenet of criminal law, at least criminal law that again is rationally applied and defensible, is that if you take action, which you couldn't have reasonably foreseen, and I know you guys don't necessarily agree with this, but just blow with the novelty of the application of the law. Mm -hmm. um, that, that means that if the law is being applied in such a novel way, then it's not an application of the law that the person being charged could have reasonably envisioned as criminalizing their conduct. If right, so there's myself, a reason why the Constitution is so adamant about yeah. prohibiting the concept of ex post facto law, meaning pr retroactively criminalizing conduct that uh, that hadn't been criminalized before. Like if I just put myself in the shoes of a president trying to overturn election results with this elaborate, like I'm pretty sure I would think like there's probably something wrong with what I'm up to here. Like I don't think I would think like oh this is totally fine and when, with within the realm of perfectly reasonable okay, Crystal, how about this? How about this? Remember, when the, remember in December of 2020, when I think pretty much every Repu state Republican attorney general uh -huh. brought a original jurisdiction lawsuit to the Supreme Court challenging, uh, I think it was Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and maybe Michigan. I think it was just Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, or se several of the contest, quote unquote contested states. Mm -hmm. They sued, like Texas sued Pennsylvania on the ground that Pennsylvania had unconstitutionally altered its election law mm -hmm. in a way that actually harmed or injured Texas because and because it produced an ultimate winner of the electoral college that was not representative of the actual will of the people. That was essentially the Texas argument. Now it was rejected on the basis of the, uh, rejected summarily even by the, uh, majority conservative Supreme Court. So right. this argument was rejected on the merits, but right. you're telling me every state Republican attorney general who made that argument, which was very consistent with the argument that Trump was making and the argument that uh, Eastman was making, that now that, that they should have foreseen as a criminal argument? No, they, no, 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 illegal, all of his speech around it, everything he said at the rallies, even the lies, as Rudy Giuliani pointed out, that is not illegal. It only became illegal after it was already a settled issue when the secretaries of state and the governors said certified Biden won, you had the real slates of electors, and they were saying, let's do their own words here, fraudulent electors, fake electors, and the email, when they were giving instructions for how to go through the process, they said, fraudulent elector instructions. Who, who's they? I, mean, can, I mean, I don't have the indictment in front Trump of me. Can and you the co-conspirators. Trump and the co-conspirators. It was in an email okay. with Boris Epstein yeah, so, to one of his lawyers. So in other words, the point is, you're right. There's plenty of stuff. There's plenty of avenues he could have went down, which were not criminal. And he exhausted those avenues. But it didn't become illegal until after the line where the election was already effectively decided by the secretaries of state and the governors when they verified the actual electors. And Mike Pence, I, we might have a disagreement on this too, but Mike Pence was in 
a ceremonial role. Everything I've read about his role that day seems to be it's just like that's what he thought. And he talked to Reagan era uh, judges who told him, like, you have no legal standing to, like, reject this thing. So in other words, they were plowing ahead knowing that they had crossed a line and it became illegal. And it seemed like there was indication internally that they're like, we kind of know what we're doing here is wrong, but they did it anyway. But the scope of the vice president's role in that situation had never been fully litigated to the point where there's established case law that uh, definitively outlined what the proper remit of the vice president is in that situation, hence why it was susceptible to the presentation of one of these alternate theories. Um, But let me just ask you this hypothetical, I think that's maybe some of the crux here. Yeah. So let's say there had been no riot on January 6th. So there was never any goofball MAGA intrusion. Yeah. It was just, but but Trump did proceed with this attempt to lobby Pence to reject electors or um, accept the alternate electors. So the, the, yeah. the fake, quote unquote, fake elector scheme still went forward, but there was no riot. Yeah. Um, don't you think, don't you think it's, it seems plausible that that would have been seen as just like this, going to the Supreme Court or going through other litigation steps in the run-up to January 6th, that the failure of that gambit on Trump's part to get Mike Pence to take certain action under the 12th Amendment, that would have been likewise seen as an exhaustion of one of his legal options. Now, I mean, it's a far-fetched option. Maybe it's a marginal uh, theory or marginal position within the kind of rubric of constitutional law, but it still would have been probably seen as a legal recourse that Trump yeah. was seeking to, to take. To be honest so do you think that the riot itself is what kind of put it over the edge? I do. You're asking a really good question. Go to, ahead. You give your answer, then I'll give mine. with you, as we have gotten further away from January 6th, and in reading especially, you know, the details that are presented here, and you're right to point out this is the government making the strongest case that they should, and Trump will get his day in court, et cetera, et cetera. I've actually come to see this scheming behind the scenes as a lot more nefarious and a lot more, you know, disturbing than what was overtly happening in terms of the trespassers and the violence on January 6th. So in a certain way, as I've gotten, you know, more perspective and distance, I actually see this as the real plot and the real scheme and the real thing that was, you know, the most damaging and had the greatest chance of succeeding yeah. too, by the way, versus the, you know, the morons in the Capitol. On yeah. January so I'll give you my answer, Michael. And then I have one more question for you before we wrap it up. But I, first of all, I think you're asking a phenomenal question because this gets to the core of the issue here. So in my opinion, if there was just rallies where he kept saying he won and it was rigged and all that stuff, I don't think there's any crime. I don't think there's any crime. I don't even think it's a close one in in that instance. If there was just a January 6th, I might surprise people with this one, but I don't really think you could charge him for that either. I mean, some people would make a stretch of an argument inciting the riot, but the fact of the matter is he spoke out of both sides of his mouth on that day and he gave himself enough legal cover where there's reasonable doubt as to like whether or not he wanted that to happen, et cetera. So even if it was just a January 6th, I say, ah, it's a stretch. I really don't think so. But if there was just a fake elector scheme and no January 6th, I think that's still a crime. Based on everything I've read about it and how they internally knew, I mean, they called it illegal at one point. They call them fake electors, not alternative electors. That tells me they knew, hey, we already crossed our deadline wherein we could have done some sort of alternate elector thing. So if it was just that, I would say that is a crime. Okay. I mean, that seems radically implausible to me because it seems like what gave this whole I'm telling you my episode opinion, such emotional. Not what I think happened. Yeah. It seems like what gave this emotion, this whole episode such emotional potency was the fact of the riot itself and the fact that there was this physical intrusion into the Capitol and they, you know, they desecrated our, you know, inner sanctum of democracy 
democracy under attack. They immediately called it a coup and an attempt to overthrow the government. Um, and that Trump was guilty of inciting the rioters to do so. That was what framed our the, the popular understanding of January 6th for these past two and a half years. Like I know Jack Smith has punted and now he's not charging inside because he's at least smart enough to know that that would have been a more obvious issue in terms of First Amendment. It's a stretch. Uh, but it's still, a stretch I mean, of an argument. Yeah. Political level doesn't it kind of I, I just think that the right itself is clearly what made it such a an outsized um kind of feature in the yeah. public imagination as to well, what this he is. Didn't, he didn't charge over that. He as didn't charge said, over that. It's a counterfactual. Yeah. So ultimately it's impossible to know whether this would have gone down without the January 6th riot. Um, my last question. Yeah, can, can I just ask you a, 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 maybe a broader question? Sure, just, sure. I'm just curious what you guys think. Okay. So yeah. again, maybe setting aside the specifics of the indictment here, mm-hmm. do you agree with me that the depiction of January 6th in the main has been incredibly overwrought uh, because, I mean, actually Adam Kinzinger, believe it or not, tweeted me from the floor of the house while the riot was underway and they were like sheltering in place or something and said that this was a coup attempt. Um, And frankly, that seemed comical to me from the outset because what does that require you to do in order to view it as a coup attempt? It requires you to come up with your own cockamamie theory that the power of like the U.S. state power somehow resides in the physical building in the Capitol, and uh, these goofball rioters had the ability to seize it by interrupting a congressional proceeding for a couple hours. No, that's fanciful. That's not actually representative of the nature of U.S. power um, well, because there was there's... no threat. There was no risk of the government being overthrown by interrupting a congressional proceeding for several hours. There just wasn't. So I guess does the overseated depiction Mm -hmm. of these events and how it's been used to, again, resurrect the war on terror, um, charge people with being somehow participants in a domestic terrorism attack, go after people for incredibly long punitive sentences. I pulled up an example recently of this Iraq war veteran who was disabled from uh, neurologically from his his service in Iraq, who was given a a hugely over punitive sentence for basically kind of a slapping instinctively a riot, a fully armored riot cop after they lunged into him with their batons. Um, for some reason, that made him party to a terrorist attack. Uh, how they're, they're even, look what they did yesterday. Jack Smith was revealed to have petitioned Twitter to allow him to execute a search warrant on Trump's Twitter account and basically seize control of Trump's Twitter account because the this affront to our democracy is so grave that we have to countenance actions like that, which actually the Biden appointed judge conceded had ramifications for the First Amendment, as the Twitter legal team argued. Listen, so, I've um, I've I've spoken out, you know, and you can watch our coverage on breaking points against the use of January 6th to justify an expansion of the security state when there should be a lot more scrutiny over how exactly it is that they failed to recognize and disrupt this threat to start with when they, you know, we're no we know they had informants in like all of these proud boys and oath keepers, et cetera. So I, I certainly um take issue with that. But I also think you're conflating two things. I mean, one is did the January 6th rioters have a real shot at succeeding in their goals? Um, as I described, as sort of like a Keystone Cops effort. But was that genuinely their goal to overturn the results of the election? Yeah, they really wanted to do it. Yeah, they didn't it, have a good plan to do it, but the they government. really wanted that's to do it. And Michael, if Pence was, was, when you if they succeeded the or, the in pressuring order. Pence, if they succeeded in pressuring Pence, it would have been a constitutional crisis. 
They are in the original conception. They wanted sure. Pence to pound the gavel and say, I hereby declare uh, Donald Trump is reelected constitutional crisis. And they were trying to bring that about. So I think it definitely was a coup attempt. But to, to Crystal's point, yeah, you had a bunch of goofballs out there, you know, in MAGA hats and dressed like a Viking and, you know, doing stupid. Like, it makes it look comical. It makes it look stupid. But it certainly was the in intention. The intention was there for sure. Well, Eastman, Eastman says the idea was not for Trump to, to just summarily declare Trump president, but for him to reject the Biden electors and then for it to go back then for the matter to go back to the state legislatures who would then deliberate nope. on the who is rightfully accorded the status no, no, no. of electors. No, so, so they what moved, Eastman, yeah, no, Eastman no, no. does say that. Listen I know, to what he, he says. He did an interview in June Michael, saying this. Michael, but they moved their position. If you read the indictment, they moved their position because they initially had a maximalist position right. and they were pressuring Pence. Say Donald Trump will be reelected. He was like, hell no, I'm not doing that. Then they kept moving the goalposts and eventually right, the they got to the point where like, was what I just can said you do it was. a little violation where you, you say down. only for 10 days we postpone this? Like they kept moving the goalposts. Well, but the ultimate the ultimate position that was presented to Pence was what I just said it was. And also, I, know, I mean, when you say, I'm glad you pushed back against the, the, against January 6th being leveraged to expand the national security state. But yeah. my point is Jack Smith's investigation is part of that expansion of the national security state. They literally use terrorism officers or counterterrorism agents to investigate January 6th offenders. They're deploying the national but security resources the of indictment. the DOJ to investigate and charge no, wait, Trump. Wait, 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 so wait, wait, that's part wait. Michael, expansion. Michael, Michael, I, how do I think they should have gone after the January 6th riders? I think you should have used all the laws that are already on the books that are very well established. I don't think you need terrorism charges, nor should you use terrorism charges. But that's neither here nor there, because we're talking about the Trump indictments, which, as yeah. I already laid out, are not sedition. They're not treason. They're not inciting a riot. They're very specific and I think very reasonable. Let me let me close out with this. Uh, well, conspiracy Michael, against we rights could... actually is a national security type of law. I mean, the reason it was enacted in the first place was so that the national security state at the time could go after genuine insurgents in the Reconstruction South and use the right. national security powers of the state to enforce the central I mean, government's Sometimes it is good for the government to enforce people's rights. Um, let me say, Michael, I'm curious, what do you think the outcome here is going to be? Like, do you, Obviously, a lot of the theories that you're putting out, these are things that Eastman is saying, these are things Trump's uh, defense attorney said on every single Sunday news show. Um, do you think that those arguments are going to carry the day in uh, when Trump does have his day in court? Um, hard to say. I mean, I know when I spoke to Harvey Silverglade this week, again, who's one of the def uh, defense attorneys for Eastman, he does anticipate that this is going, eventually going to go to the Supreme Court and it will be uh, dismissed on First Amendment or other grounds. Now, I think that's maybe a bit overconfident. I don't know for sure. I think there's going to be a ton of pressure on for. Uh, so you I'm, think I'm, I'm, be, not sure, I'm not sure that Kavanaugh be... and Barrett don't strike me as like incredibly principled upholders of First Amendment protections. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I think it's a little bit more ambiguous as to how. So they you would think he'll rule. be found guilty in D.C., but it'll go up to the Supreme Court and ultimately. I don't know. I, I don't even know when they're going to actually have a trial. I mean, because mm -hmm. Jack, they're, they're stacking trial on top of trial. I mean, Jack Smith has to do his Espionage Act prosecution, which people think is more straightforward. So maybe they'll prioritize that. Um, you know, I, 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 it's, I don't really know. I mean, we're in a precedent breaking situation. I mean, what do you? Th I'm curious what you think is going to happen. 
I mean, the the to me, the biggest question is the timeline. Um, I've, I think that the documents case does seem to be pretty straightforward. Like anyone with those set of, in fact, I think they gave Trump more leeway than they would have your average citizen given the set of facts. Now you can make a like philosophical, theoretical argument about the Espionage Act. It's not one that Trump or his team ever supported before this moment. So there's that one, but that one, the timeline has already been pushed out. But late the, the, the consistency the or lack judge. thereof of Trump's team is not how I determine what line. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I got you. I got you. But, um, you know, that one, I don't know if it'll be adjudicated before the election. This one, um, I think, given the fact that you already have 14 out of 15 judges that have effectively backed the government's interpretation of uh, one of the statutes in question, yeah, I think it's pretty likely they secure a conviction yeah. here. And my opinion is, I have the Mark Levin opinion, which is, he was ranting about this the other day, that he's got all these charges against him. If he goes down on only one of them, then it's sort of game, set, match. And I certainly think he'll go down on at least one of them. Um, my but last how about question this protective order? I mean, do you guys think that if Trump is being prevented by Jack Smith, or Jack Smith is seeking to prevent Trump from mentioning any, mentioning to certain discovery material, over the course of his campaigning for president, where he is like, you know, leading by 50 percent or something in the Republican primaries, mm -hmm. that doesn't make you wonder about the certain First Amendment implications, like a presidential candidate being impeded by his likely opponent's chief law enforcement officer from engaging in political speech because of these yeah. charges I mean, that were brought. I mean, that does make me wary. Yeah, but here's the thing. So I was on a I was on a criminal case jury and they impressed upon us throughout the trial that like you're not allowed to talk to anybody about this. You're not allowed to bring anything up to the media. You have to be totally silent about it. And that's just viewed as part and parcel of when you're in a jury for a criminal trial. And that is a literal restriction on free speech. But at the same time, it's been you were a defendant. No, 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 of course, I wasn't a defendant, but I was on the jury and they were like, you can't talk about this. And it's like, well, don't I have free speech to talk about whatever the hell I want to talk about? But in a very technical sense, they're like, you're just not allowed to talk about it. And it's the same thing with Trump. I mean, he violated like seven different things of his pre-trial release, and he's still going out there and hammering away on the same themes. So if anything, he's putting everybody else in a weird situation where it's like, what are you going to do? Do pre-trial detention of a former president of the United States? Well, he's giving you every reason to do that. But if you do that, obviously it's a huge issue. So, I mean, I think Trump likes to start a brush fire and then turn around and be like, well, what the hell happened to this brush fire? Where's this brush fire come from? So, yeah, I mean, well, it's, Trump it's a shitty... Well, Trump hasn't been convicted of any crime, and yet they're restricting his speech in advance of any conviction, which is a violation that, of due but I'm just saying it's part I know parcel. a lot of other citizens face the same violation of due process with gag orders and protective orders and so forth. But it's of extra significance now that it hinders the political speech of a leading presidential candidate. I, I understand what you're saying. All I'm saying is then you'd have to get rid of the whole concept of like having rules for pretrial release or, you know, gag orders, et cetera. Like if you want to have a like philosophical conversation about are those ever merited? I think that's a reasonable conversation to have. But all I'm saying is Trump put everybody in a very difficult situation. Let me ask my last question because I've been wanting to get to this one for a while. Yeah. Um, so as a token of good faith, I will go ahead and do what I think is the steel man of the position that I don't agree with. Okay. So I think an argument which is would be kind of solid for Trump and his team to make is effectively, number one, nothing ultimately happened here. Joe Biden is president and he eventually became president. So you could say <laughs> it was an attempt at a crime, but since it didn't work, by definition, whatever punishment you would dole out is going to be much less severe because nothing actually came about as a result of it. And the other thing I would do is I would say... You know, he could make the argument it's unclear how much he was actually driving the car. 
he can throw one of the other co-conspirators under the bus and be like, hey, I was like in the passenger seat and this person was driving and I was duped by their bad advice or whatever. I think that's his best path to go forward. But let me ask you. So now I want you to steel man our position, steel man Jack Smith's yeah. position. Give the best argument for our side. Right. Well, the, the first thought I had there was, you know, on the, the note of you graciously uh, making offering to make a steel man version of my point, I guess first I would say in the hypothetical scenario that a lot of people have prophesied was going to be the case with Trump, that he was just going to refuse to leave office entirely. So let's say on January 20th at 12 noon, Trump actually did attempt to just remain in the White House, refused to vacate, maybe um, so, gathered uh, some sympathetic members of the military or whomever to enable him to at least putatively uh, retain control of the levers of power, um, then that would have been an illegal act. That would have been straightforwardly an illegal act. But the irony is, as you've, I think, acknowledged, there was no bona fide interruption to the transfer of power. I mean, over and over again, we're given these solemn lectures about how uh, harrowing it was that the peaceful transfer of power was interrupted for the first time since the Civil War. I mean, Chris Hayes almost tearfully Michael, Michael, gave you're this not uh, soliloquy us. where he said, steel that. Man oh, yeah, no, so I'm, not, I'm, I'm gonna attempt to steel man it. Um, It's, it, it's rough because it, it, it seems like just such a clear application of ex post facto law that I, I guess <laughs> I'm, I'm wary of even deploying the criminal justice apparatus in this context. But um, I, I guess, look, if, if there is something, a piece of evidence that I haven't seen yet, and maybe there is, maybe it's in discovery, that Trump issued a patently illegal order. So let's say he, he instructed a Michigan elector to... Uh, violate a uh, trespassing statute or something in Michigan and convene this electoral college meeting. Um, that was, you know, where, where, where they, they proffered these alternate electors. Or uh, let's say that uh, Trump was on the phone with, you know, Ted Cruz or something in, uh, as he was in the Senate and, and did uh, hint at or allude at the idea, oh, maybe it's not such a bad thing if, you and Marjorie Taylor Greene or whomever actually do kind of, with a wink and a nod, allow these rioters to storm into the Capitol and physically interrupt the proceedings. Like if Trump could be tied to either a verbal instruction or an action of some kind that, that um, constituted his uh, proposal of a bona fide illegal act that led to the disruption of the proceeding. Mm -hmm. Then I would say, okay, there's a there's a there's a potentially clear uh, criminal uh, offense there that is much more defensible than the ones that have been on offer thus far. So, and maybe Jack Smith is going to make that argument at some point. I don't know. It's not in the indictment, um, but that I could see being viable uh, because Beautiful. then that would be Beautiful. closer to analogy that Crystal and others often bring up. Uh, okay, it's not protected political speech if you're vocalizing your intent to commit a murder. Well, it's not protected political speech either to instruct your subordinate to basically orchestrate a riot or gotcha. orchestrate a, a literal interruption of the congressional proceeding. Well, that, um, so maybe that's forthcoming. I don't know. Is that is that that's a, a steel man or is that that'll do. That, that is that's a beautiful way to end the podcast. Us making okay. your argument, you making our argument. Wonderful, Michael Tracy. Thank you so much for joining us, man. Tell everybody uh, where they can find you. 
Yeah, Twitter, I'm Tracy. Uh, Substack, also, I'm Tracy. I'm going to have a piece on this that I have been working on for a week or so that's going to flesh out some of my uh, thoughts on this in more detail. So go to nice. mtracy.substack.com awesome. if you're interested. And I also, you know, write for other places. So whatever. Awesome. So, you know, I think you know how to Google. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks again, man. We appreciate you coming appreciate on. Appreciate it, Michael. Thank you. All right. Take care, guys. Bye. You too. All right, so that was Michael Tracy. I would say that was a very spirited debate. Yeah, it was fun. Good yeah, like. that was fun. So I, I went through the entire indictment this morning mm-hmm. before coming here, <laughs> and I found a lot of nuggets that, you know, people haven't really talked about, but I yeah. think are kind of amazing. So first of all, you pointed this out already, but like Trump acknowledged to co-conspirator three that the rigged election claims were, quote, crazy. Right. Um, so like some of the Sidney Powell, Georgia, Dominion. Yeah whatever yeah. thing mm-hmm. he said they were crazy. He, he all, there's the famous thing where everybody knows where he said to Mike Pence, you're too honest, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which implies he knows yeah. what he's doing is wrong and that the election wasn't stolen. Trump yeah. worked with co-conspirator four um, to open sham election crime investigations. Uh-huh. I didn't know that. Yeah. That seems to me to be also kind of like on, on par with you're doing these fraudulent elector slates and you know it's fraudulent. The indication in the uh, indictment is that he knew these were sham election crime investigations. Uh, they forced the Justice Department, they, they uh, really pressured them to try to send letters to the states fraudulently saying they have identified significant concerns that may have impacted the outcome of the election. Yeah. I didn't know that either. Um, the other thing that I found interesting, which we brought up in the conversation, was that on January 6th, uh, as the violence was happening, um, they, they redoubled their efforts like to push it off. Even after all the violence, even after at the end of the day, when it all cleared away, they were still calling all these senators saying, don't do it. Don't certify the election, which I think that's such a clear like you're obviously obstructing this official government proceeding. It's not just political speech. It's over. It's done. And they're still trying to stop it. Um, Co-conspirator five had a memo about the fake electors and he sent it to the fake elector to the people who were supposed to control like the fake elector slates. Mm -hmm. And in it, they call it fraudulent elector memo. (laughs) <laughs> and fraudulent elector instructions. I think that's Boris Epstein. Is that total particular idiot. co-conspirator? Total idiot. Um, and the th- I found this one amazing too. On December thirteenth, co-conspirator one and five had a conversation where they decided the plan is no longer to do uh, fake electors in case Trump wins. But they said even if Trump loses, we're going to go through with this fake elector thing. Yeah, admitting like we're just this is making it up on the fly type stuff you know if if i were going to steel ban his case i actually think the strongest argument is the one about how you know the fact that it's the biden doj and the timing is right now during political election season and you know that this should be adjudicated at the ballot box and not in the courtroom and that this is overtly political like i actually think that that's probably the strongest case because even they to me, it's a tacit acknowledgement that they know that their legal arguments, I'm talking about the Trump team's legal arguments, are probably not going to go that well in the court of law. That his attorney, rather than focusing on, like, you know, the motions that they need to file in the case or whatever they need to do in the courtroom, went on literally every Sunday talk show to make a political argument. It, it to me, demonstrates that they feel like their strongest hand is in trying to win the election, persuade public opinion and Trump be able to let himself off the hook, that that is a much stronger hand than trying to win actually in the courtroom. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's what they're doing. I don't think that's a very strong argument on their side, though, because it's like 
on the left, we all prodded Obama, hey, you should prosecute Bush and Cheney. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if we did that, people would have been like, well, this is political. And it's like, yeah, no shit. It's also correct. Yeah. Like, and because everything is political. So well, to try out like, this is political. It's like, it doesn't matter. Is it right or wrong? That's the question. And we know from the polling, that is basically the way the American pe- people feel about it. Yeah, it's it. political, they, they, but also it's based. It's political, but also he did some things that were criminal. Absolutely. So uh, to me, you know, also to the point of, People wouldn't have thought beforehand that this was criminal behavior. I mean, Mike Pence was getting pressured hard. Mike Pence was Trump's lackey the entire administration. I mean, it was just like he pushed him really hard. It was grotesque, the level of bootlicking. But he got legal advice that was like, this would you can't do this. This is basically this a is unconstitutional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You cannot do it. So clearly, Mike Pence was able easily to find uh, advice that this would be a criminal or at least unconstitutional act. So the idea no one could have seen in advance that this would be a problem. I just don't particularly buy it. But I do want to say, you know, super grateful for Michael Tracy coming on. Not easy. Lines you know. in. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, both of us going up against him, whatever. And I thought he did a good job articulating his views. And I, I enjoyed the back and forth with him. Yeah. And let's wrap it up with this. So my yeah. question for you is, here's what I laid out for him. If Trump had just done rallies and denied the election, lying, right, or at least he's factually wrong, whatever he thinks in his head, mm-hmm. right, that's not a crime. It's just not, right? And there would be some resistance liberals who are like, uh, you know, lock him up for, I don't know, defamation, libel, slander or something. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Knowingly lying. Somebody would say shit like that. Yeah. Nonsense. So I would say in that scenario, just the rallies, no crime. If there was just January 6th, that's the one that I thought was kind of like a little bit of a hot take on my part. I still think it's not really like you're bordering on it. Yeah. But I think it falls just short because he gave himself enough legal cover by talking out of both sides of his mouth. Yeah. Let's make no mistake about it. He egged everybody on. He's oh. the one who was tweeting about the rally the entire time. He gave he, a speech and, saying, and be strong. Were, you got to go go to the Capitol. Yeah. Go with strength. And people were begging him to tell people to go home. And he would not. He do wouldn't it do it for over for an hours. hour for yeah. over an hour. And I read through the whole indictment this yeah. morning. And the way they pressured Pence was so over the top. I didn't realize how bad like Trump was every day meeting with him, yelling at him sometimes, called him on Christmas to try to uh, pester him about. It was endless. Right. But even if it was just January 6th, even that it's like it's borderline. Right. Yeah. Like I could see them bringing a case on that and then Trump winning. Cause he's like, look, here's the thing where I said, go home peacefully. Here's the thing where I said, respect our officers. Here's the thing where, you know, he had a defense. Yeah. But if it was just the fake elector scheme, I think that's what got him. And I think the reason is the reason why that's so illegal and such a crime is you left a paper trail of fraudulent documents and internally you're discussing it. Like, you know, it's illegal. This is after these things were already certified and you're still playing this game. Yeah. And so you're trying to defraud the United States of America and you are trying to disenfranchise millions of voters by overturning the results in those in the uh, seven states. Yeah. I mean, that to me, that's the open and shut. I mean, I think it's hard. I don't see any way around the fake electors thing. Well, to me, again, there are three elements that there was no real fraud, that there was knowledge or at least should have been knowledge that there was no real fraud and that you went forward with this plot anyway. Because, I mean, there was, you might see this, um, Michael didn't bring this up, but I've seen conservatives bring up this instance with Hawaii, where there was some genuine question, an election was separated by like 100 votes, there was some genuine question over who won, and they were going into a recount, and so the governor certified an alternate slate of electors that ended up being the real one after they did the count. But why that's so different is because you had a legitimate question of who won, it wasn't just some conspiracy nonsense from Sidney Powell, right? Yeah, scheme to yeah. overthrow the results of a 
legitimate election. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, I thought that was a phenomenal conversation. I hope you guys yep. enjoyed it. You know the drill, all the shameless plugs. Everybody click like, click subscribe, go sign up on Substack. $5 a month gets you the video of every single interview and debate, and it gets to you a day early. Everybody else could sign up for free on Substack, and then you get the audio podcast version of every show day later, usually on Saturday. So anyway, that's what we got for you guys. We love you. We'll talk to you soon.